Lord, we ask a blessing upon the opening up of the Word of God, the teaching and the preaching of the Word. Lord, would you feed your sheep today? Jesus, you died for these sheep. You want them to grow in grace. I pray that your word would be a means today, that that would happen. In Jesus' name, amen. Blaise Pascal, the Christian French philosopher of the 1600s, once made this statement. He said, all men have happiness as their object. There are no exceptions. However, however different the means they employ, they aim at the same end. I think he was exactly right. I believe that every person in this world is seeking happiness. Now, they don't all seek it in the same way. He says here, however different the means they employ, they aim at the same end. So some use certain means to gain their happiness, and some use other means to gain their happiness, but they're all seeking happiness. Now, what I want you to be thinking about this morning as we move through our text today is, who is the truly happy person? Jesus answers that in this section of Scripture, because he talks about who the blessed person is, and the word blessed means to be happy. So who is the truly happy person, or how does a person find true happiness? There are basically two approaches. There's the approach of the world, and there's the approach of the disciple of Jesus. And we're going to look at two approaches today. Now, we need to ask a few questions as we get into our text to understand some distinguishing parts about this particular section of Scripture. First of all, is this the Sermon on the Mount? Over in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, we have what we have called the Sermon on the Mount. Is this the same thing? Just a variation of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7? Or is this a completely different sermon preached on a different day in a different setting? Well, people have argued about that for a long time. And there's different opinions about that. After studying it, the conclusion I have come to is that these are similar sermons, but yet they are different. First of all, because they are preached in a different setting. Matthew 5.1 says that when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Luke 6.17 says Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place. Okay, so in Matthew 5.1, Jesus is going up to a mountain to preach. Here we have him coming down from the mountain with the apostles that he's just selected, and now he's preaching on a level place. It appears from these two descriptions that they're different locations. Also, there seems to be a different time involved. In Luke, Jesus prays all night long. The next morning, he calls to himself the 12 men that he wanted to be his apostles, and then directly afterward, he descends to the level place and preaches. But in Matthew, we have the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5, 6, and 7, and then in chapter 10, we have Jesus selecting the 12 apostles. So it seems like the chronology is different in both settings. And then thirdly, the content's different. Although it's very similar, it's different. In Luke, we have about 30 verses that comprise this sermon. In Matthew, we have 117 verses. In Luke, we have Jesus adding some things that he doesn't add in Matthew. For example, the woes that we're going to be looking at today. Matthew doesn't record those woes. Luke does. Luke doesn't record a lot of the things that Matthew says. 
And so what I think we have here is what every preacher does. We have a repetition of sermon material. This was such an important sermon that Jesus undoubtedly preached it on many different occasions in many different settings throughout his three and a half years. He's wanting to declare to his disciples what it means to be in his kingdom and who is in his kingdom and who is not in his kingdom. And so that would have been, have been an important message for him to deliver many, many times. So I believe we have a different sermon here, although similar to the one in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Now secondly, Jesus speaks about being poor and hungering in both Matthew and Luke. Well, in Luke, in the sermon we're looking at today, is Jesus speaking of spiritual or physical things? Is he speaking about physical poverty or spiritual poverty? Physical hunger or spiritual hunger? Now, we have no question in Matthew, he's talking about spiritual hunger and spiritual poverty because he said, blessed are the poor, what? In spirit, spiritually poor. Those people are blessed. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. But isn't it interesting when we come to Luke that he doesn't say that? He says, blessed are you who are poor. There's no qualifier after that. Blessed are you who hunger now. I believe because this appears to be a different sermon preached on a different day in a different setting that Jesus is slightly modifying that sermon and he's bringing out different material than he's brought out in his previous sermon and he's focusing not on the spiritual aspects of hunger and poverty but the physical aspects. He wants them to know that there is a certain blessing attached to the disciple who endures physical poverty and physical hunger for the Lord's sake. Now, this comes out clearer when we contrast these verses. Take a look with me. First of all, verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor. Go down to verse 24. But woe to you who are rich. Verse 21. Blessed are you who hunger now. Verse 25. Woe to you who are well fed now. Verse 21. Blessed are you who weep now. Verse 25, woe to you who laugh now. Verse 22, blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil. Verse 26, woe to you when all men speak well of you. Do you see the contrast? It's deliberate. He's saying there are blessings attached to these physical situations that you must endure as a disciple of Jesus and there are curses attached to the person who faces no opposition and no hardship and no sorrow because of a non-attachment to Jesus Christ. So let's look at the third question. Who are the ones that Jesus pronounces to be blessed? Who are those ones? The poor, the hungry, those who weep, and those who are hated. Those are the ones that Jesus says are blessed. Now notice he doesn't say that poverty is blessed or hunger is blessed or weeping is blessed. Poverty and hunger and weeping and sorrow are not blessed states or conditions in and of themselves. And riches and comfort are not cursed states in and of themselves. You have certain people in the Bible who were rich and were godly men and went to heaven. Abraham, Job, Joseph of Arimathea, 
So just because you're rich or you experience comfort doesn't mean that you're cursed by God. And just because you are poor doesn't mean you're blessed by God. In and of themselves doesn't mean a thing. But when, the, when that person makes an attachment to Jesus Christ, those bad, difficult, suffering states and conditions turn out for a blessing in his life. It depends on the relation that that individual has to the Son of Man. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the poor. He says, blessed are you poor. The words who are are actually in italics. They don't appear in the Greek. Blessed are you poor. Well, who's he talking to? Who is the you that he's speaking to? Go back to verse 17. Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place, and there was a large crowd of his disciples. And a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. And all the people were trying to touch him, for power was coming from him and healing them all. There are three different groups of people here. The twelve, the apostles. Number two, the disciples. So this was a larger group of disciples that the twelve were chosen out of. So Jesus had many learners, followers, that would follow him around. They wanted to learn from the master and be taught. And then you've got the third group, which is the throng. The people who wanted to be cured. They were there for physical healing. They were troubled by unclean spirits, and they wanted them cast out. They wanted to hear his teaching because they were curious about it. So you had the, the 12 apostles, this larger crowd of disciples, and then the throng, probably unbelievers, that were there for the physical manifestations of blessing that they could get. But look at verse 20. And turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor. He's not talking about unbelievers here. He's talking about people who are following Jesus. Blessed are you disciples who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So, Luke has already gone to pains twice to tell us that a disciple is someone who forsakes all to follow Jesus. Do you remember back in chapter 5, when uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John are out on their boats fishing and they hadn't caught anything all night, and Jesus says, just cast your net on the other side. You'll have a great catch of fish. And they said, Lord, we've toiled all night. We're the fishermen here. You're the, you're the rabbi. I mean, we know what we're doing, Lord. We haven't caught a thing. But at your word, we'll let down the nets. And they did, and they caught so many fish that the boats start to sink. And Peter comes in and he falls at Jesus's knees, and he said, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. And the Lord said, from now on, you're going to be catching men. And the Bible says at that point, when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Then later on, in verse 28, we find Jesus calling this sinner, this tax collector, this sleazy, low-down guy that everybody hated, Matthew. He calls him. Nobody else wanted him, but Jesus did. I want you, Matthew. And it says, And Matthew left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. So, when Jesus said, Blessed are you poor, you know what he's saying? Blessed are you disciples who have forsaken everything to follow me. And who are going to be experiencing poverty and hunger and sorrow and rejection. Blessed are you. There's a blessing attached to your endurance of these things as my disciples.
They had forsaken riches. They were willing to forsake comfort and popularity to follow Jesus. They were willing to embrace poverty and hunger and sorrow and persecution. And Jesus says the result is the kingdom of God is yours. You're going to be satisfied. You're going to laugh. And your reward in heaven is going to be great. You, little band of ragtag, ragamuffin, little motley crew of disciples, you are the ones in all the world who are blessed. You're the ones who are blessed. Now, we have a clue, an interpretive clue given to us in verse 22 that's really important. So I want you to focus in on that. Jesus said, Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Don't miss that. That helps us immensely to understand what he's trying to say. Blessed are you when men hate you for the sake of the Son of Man. And we could apply that same little phrase there to every one of the other statements that Jesus made. For example, blessed are you who are poor for the sake of the Son of Man. For you shall be satisfied. For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now for the sake of the Son of Man. For you're going to be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now for the sake of the Son of Man. For you shall laugh. And then we've just read the last one, blessed are you when men hate you for the sake of the Son of Man. You could apply that same phrase to every one of these. It's because these disciples are experiencing these hardships for the sake of the Son of Man that blessing accrues to them. If they experience these hardships for just because they're hardships, not because of an attachment to Jesus, there's no blessing attached to that. So, Christ was their pursuit. They were pursuing Jesus Christ. That's why they were poor, hungry, sorrowful, and hated. They were living for eternity. They were living for Jesus. They were following Christ. So they were the blessed ones in the earth. Now, who are the ones that Jesus pronounces woes upon? He pronounces four blessings, and then he pronounces four woes. And they're opposite to each other, aren't they? Who are the ones that get the woes? The rich, the well-fed, those who laugh, and those that everybody speaks well about. Now, the word laugh is an interesting word. It really has the connotation of to gloat. To gloat. Now, when do you gloat over something? When you win and the other person loses. And you say, ha, 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 you're laughing. I won. You lost. Speaking about success, you won. You're successful. So here's the four categories. Wealth, comfort, success, and popularity. Jesus pronounces woes upon people who experience those things in this lifetime because they have no attachment to him. Rather, they run after these other values of theirs. They run after wealth. They run after comfort. They run after success. They chase after popularity. Now, is Jesus saying that all wealthy people or all comfortable people or all successful people or all well-liked people are condemned or miserable? No, he's not. But he is saying that people who do not pursue Christ, but instead pursue these other things, woe unto them. 
And the word woe really means they are miserable. To be blessed is to be happy. To have a woe pronounced on you means that you're miserable, that you're wretched. It's the exact, exact opposite of being happy. It's to be sorrowful to the point of wretchedness. Now, I want you to notice when these things are taking place. Verse 24. But woe to you who are rich. Right now, present tense. Woe to you who are well fed now. Woe to you who laugh now. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. These are things that are taking place now, in this lifetime. He says, you are receiving your comfort in full. Right now. You have no eternal reward to look forward to. You're getting everything you're ever going to get in this lifetime, right now. Remember when Jesus said, beware of practicing your righteousness before men so that you can receive the praises of man? He said, that's all the praise you're ever going to get is what you're getting right now. You have no eternal reward. And that's what Jesus is saying to these people who are rich and comfortable and successful and popular right now. There is no eternal reward for them because they're not focusing on what they what they need and what they truly ought to focus on. They're focusing on what the world can give them in this lifetime. And they're trying to get everything now from the world that they can, and they're neglecting the world to come. See, the disciple of Jesus lives for eternity. The non-disciple of Jesus lives for this world, this present world. What can I get out of this world? How much money can I get? How comfortable can I make my life? How successful can I be? How popular and well-respected and liked? And how many friends can I have? It's a totally opposite view of living life. You've, have you read that bumper sticker that says, the one who dies with the most toys wins? Well, I think we should probably revise that bumper sticker. The one who dies with the most toys often loses. That's the truth. That's the real truth. It was D.L. Moody, the great evangelist of the 1900s, that said, This life is all the heaven the worldly has, and all the hell the saint ever sees. It's all the heaven the worldly will ever have, and it's all the hell the saint will ever see. And the Lord Jesus Christ put it a little bit differently. He said, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? That's another way of saying, woe to you who are rich, comfortable, popular, and successful. You can gain the whole world, but what does it matter in the end if you have forfeited your soul? Now, if you're like me, you read these words and you think, this doesn't make any sense. Blessed are the poor people, those who are dirt poor, those who are hungry every day, those who cry a buckets full of tears, <laughs> Those who everybody hates, those are the really happy people. And the really miserable and wretched people are the ones who have everything. Money, success, cars, homes. They've got everything they could ever want. It's like telling your college buddies, see, I've just graduated, and I've got a fourfold goal. I want to become the poorest person, the most hungry person, the most sorrowful person, the most hated person in the world. And when I get those four objectives, I know I've made it in life. 
<laughs> what? What are you talking about? It doesn't make any sense. But see, Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. It's exactly opposite the value system of this world. It's exactly opposite. And until we get that, we don't understand Jesus. There's a great reversal. Everyone in this world is trying to get it all now. But there's coming a world to come when everything will be reversed and those who had it all now will have nothing. And those who had nothing in this world are going to have everything. So those are the ones who Jesus pronounces these woes upon. Just last Thursday and Friday, I was cleaning windows for a client who had a 5,700 square foot home. And folks, you wouldn't believe this house. <laughs> it was on three acres three acres in a residential neighborhood where everybody else had a normal plot of land. I don't know how they did it, but they had three acres for their backyard. They had a full-time groundskeeper who did nothing but just worked for them day and night, keeping up everything on their property. You go into their house and you've got these cascade of windows, not only on the first floor, but on the second floor. And if you walk out the back sliding glass door, you fall into a swimming pool. I mean, there was no distance between the back door and the pool. It came right up to the back door, kind of like a moat in a castle where you got the drawbridge. There's, there's like, a, this, like a river running right next to the backyard. And he had a red Ferrari in the garage as, long, as well with a, a, a Porsche. So this guy had money, he had success, he had comfort, and he had all kinds of popularity, all kinds of friends, because they were inviting 60 people over for some kind of party that night. That's why I was there, cleaning their house. But here's the deal. I was cleaning those windows, and after you, I had this long pole, because he had these super high windows, and I was poling the windows, and then I put a towel on the end of it, and I was detailing the edges, and I, I put that towel against the wall, and he starts yelling at me, no, no, don't put it over there. I said, okay. So I put it against his drapes. No! He even got louder. No, don't put it against the drapes. They're satin. See, he was possessed. He was obsessed with his possessions. He would walk around behind me from room to room, finding every tiny little flaw in this perfect house, this gorgeous house. But he would point out every single flaw that he could find. And he was on the phone all day long talking to people, saying, you got to come over and fix this. It's not just perfect. It's not just right. And I thought... I felt sad for this guy because he had everything, but he couldn't enjoy it. He was, you remember how Jesus talked about that, that one kind of seed that sprouts up, but the cares of the world crowd out any fruitfulness? It was like the concerns and the cares of the world just crowded out any peace in his life and any joy, and he's so anxious about all these possessions that he had and how they all have to become perfect again, and how do I get the hard water off and, I just felt sad for him. And it reminded me of this text. It reminded me of people who have everything, but if they don't have Jesus, in the end, they're going to have nothing. They'll have absolutely nothing. See, the disciple experiences short-term suffering, but has eternal happiness. But the non-disciple experiences short-term gratification, but experiences eternal misery. Now, there's one final question I want to ask today. Why is Jesus telling us all this? What's his point? You know, why, why tell us these things? Well, there's two reasons, I believe. Number one, Jesus wants us to prepare us to fight. 
He wants to prepare us for war. You see, if you follow Jesus, you have declared war on Satan, and Satan is going to declare war on you, and you are going to experience some hardships, you're going to experience some suffering, and you're going to experience some rejection, simply because of your attachment to him, and for no other reason. And Jesus wants us to prepare his motley little crew of disciples for the warfare, the, the fight that they're going to experience. Notice, going back to verse 20, notice this. Blessed are you who are poor now. 21. Blessed are you who hunger now. Blessed are you who weep now. Verse 23. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. Jesus is trying to get them to understand that you're going through present difficulties now, but yet you've got a great reward coming for you in heaven. He's seeking to get their minds off of the temporal and get them onto the eternal. And so he wants them, he wants to arm them for the fight. He's trying to fortify them. I want to give you a glimpse of the eternal so that you can fight what's going on right now. You can fight Satan. You can come out the victor. It was Charles Simeon, the vicar of a British Anglican church in the 1700s. He said this, He alone is happy who is happy for eternity. He's the only one who's happy, who is happy for eternity. And here's the deal. There's two types of people. Some people lack what they want. And so they spend their life pursuing what they lack instead of what they really need, which is Jesus. Okay? We understand that person. They lack money. They're poor. They lack health. They're sick. They lack food. They're hungry. They lack comfort. They weep. They lack acceptance. They're hated. And so they, they want what they don't have, and so they spend their life focusing on what they don't have and trying to get it. But the problem is, if they focus on what they want instead of Jesus, they end up to be just as much losers as the other group of people. And here's the other group of people. They have what they want. It's not that they lack what they want. They ha they've got it. But they don't focus on Jesus either. They spend their whole life focusing on what they have because they like what they have. And so it takes their eyes off of what is truly needful and onto the temporal. Both people are lost. Those who lack what they want and focus on it, they're lost. Those who have what they want and focus on what they have, they're lost. Both are in the same boat. They're seeking their satisfaction, the first group, in what they don't have. And the second group, they're seeking their satisfaction in what they do have, instead of where they should be seeking their satisfaction, which is in Jesus Christ, the true treasure of mankind. Do you see the point? If Satan can get our eyes off of the true treasure and onto what we want in this world, or onto what we have in this world, rather onto him, the pearl of great price, he's won. And so Jesus is trying to arm his disciples for that warfare. Satan's going to attack you. He's going to try to divert your attention to a lesser treasure, to something that looks great, but is like fool's gold, 
looks great, but there's no value to it in the end. He's wanting to rivet your attention on that which is eternally your treasure, which is Jesus himself. And that's why these disciples were so blessed, because they were following Jesus. They had found the treasure. They were following the treasure. They had it. They weren't trying to pursue something that they lacked. They weren't pursuing riches and success and popularity and comfort. They were pursuing Jesus. And they were willing to embrace all of those negative hardships and the pursuit of Jesus. So the devil is constantly trying to fight to keep the treasure hidden from us and to get us focused on something else. And sometimes we do that in relationships, don't we? We look to another individual as our treasure rather than to Christ. And I've talked to many people over the years. When your relationship with, with your husband or your wife is not exactly what you want it to be, it can become disillusioning. And it can become kind of frustrating. Because we all get married thinking that other person is going to make us happy. Right? No? <laughs> <laughs> I think most people do, though. They think, well, this person is going to make me happy, and I'll be able to make them happy, and that's why we get married. We don't get married to endure misery the rest of our life. We endure because, oh, this is going to be a great thing. But when we're not always happy, when things don't work out just what we had planned for them to work out, it's, it can be frustrating. And we can start to think, well, you're the reason I'm not happy. And they can say to you, you're the reason I'm not happy. And what we need to do is re recognize that I, I don't have the capacity to make somebody happy all the time. And they don't have the capacity to make me happy all the time. I'm not Jesus and they're not Jesus. Only Jesus can fill us. Only Jesus can really satisfy us. Now that's not to say that we shouldn't serve one another in marriage and strive to make the other person happy and put them before ourselves. We should. But when we look at the ultimate if we get our eyes off of Christ and onto someone else to fulfill me and fill me up and make me happy and satisfy me, we're just going to be frustrated. Because no human being can do what only Christ can do. So the first reason, I think, why Jesus is telling us this is because he wants us to prepare us to fight for joy. Fight for joy. You want joy? Fight for it. Keep your eyes on the true treasure. Don't let them get diverted to something lesser. It can be a new iPad. It can be a new car. It can be a better job. It can be a bigger house. Don't rivet your attention on these things. Rivet them on Christ and find real life and joy and satisfaction in Him. And folks, I'm preaching to myself because I find myself as of late having to be completely absorbed in my work, my job working long hours, and it's difficult for me to be riveted on Christ when I'm having to be riveted on work. And I know it's just a season, but maybe some of you are going through similar, something similar to what I'm going through. Let's, let's fight to get our attention on Christ, to find joy in worship and joy in prayer and joy in having Him speak to us as we open this Word and speak back to Him. Find life in Him rather than the things of the world. Number two, another reason why he's telling us these things is because he wants to teach us how we are to be different. How we're to be different. The Jews in the Old Testament were to be separate and distinct from all the pagan nations around them. And God gave them laws 
so that they would be separate from them. He gave them dietary laws, didn't he? No shellfish, no pork. They ate differently than the nations around them. He gave them ceremonial laws. They washed their hands before eating. That wasn't just to get the dirt off, that was a ceremony. He gave them these festivals and these feasts to observe. He gave them sacrifices to perform. And so their distinctness in the Old Testament was from these outward laws that they observed. But what happened when Jesus came to all those laws? He set them aside, didn't he? Circumcision's gone, animal sacrifices are gone, dietary laws are gone, they're all out the window. So what now distinguishes the disciple of Jesus from the rest of the people in the world? It's not that they dress funny or eat funny or do funny rituals, right? We don't do any of that anymore. Here's the difference. The pe person of the world looks at the Christian and they say, that person has a different treasure than I do. They value something different than I do. I don't really understand it. It doesn't make complete sense to me, but I know that they are living for something different than what I'm living for. And you know what? That can be attractive. When people see that it's not just the outward way you dress or speak, or it, but it's, it's these inward priorities and values of your life. You live for Jesus. He's the reason you live. He's the reason you do what you do. It's Christ who makes the difference in your life. And that is really the thing that is to distinguish us from the people of the world. And the sad thing is that most professing Christians, the really the only thing that distinguishes them from people in the world is that they end up going to church on Sunday. Right? They have the same values as the rest of the world. They're working just as hard to be as rich and as successful and as uh, comfortable and as popular as they can possibly be now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with having money or comfort or pleasure if you use them for God's glory. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you forget Jesus in the process and you run after those things, you've lost it. You've missed out on the greatest thing. Can we say, can we say this? Jesus, you are my treasure and I can have everything but without you, I have nothing. And I can have nothing, but with you, I have everything. Maybe there's some of us here today who find that we've been drifting a little bit. Or the devil's been able to get our minds and our hearts off of Christ and onto something else. And it's time this morning that we redirect our gaze and get our mind and our focus back on him. The Lord holds out his two hands, and he can say, I've got all the things of the world in this hand, and I've got myself in this hand. Which one do you want? If you have to choose, what's it going to be? See, we can have everything, but without Jesus in the end, we don't have anything. And we can have nothing, but if we have Jesus, we have everything we really need. That's, that's just the truth. So, if, if somehow the enemy has been able to redirect your gaze onto a lesser treasure, 
these baubles, these fool's gold items, let's come back today in our heart, in our affection, in our mind. Let's find our treasure in the one who can really satisfy us and fill us and give us what our soul desperately craves. I could summarize Jesus' sermon in these two sentences. Blessed are you when everything else is taken away, but you still have me. And cursed are you when you have everything, but you don't have me. So, based on that, are you blessed or cursed today? Are you blessed or are you cursed? Let's pray. Lord, we confess to you that it, to our shame, it's easy for us to get our eyes off of the true treasure and onto fool's gold. And Lord, would you grant us gifts of repentance to turn from that which is actually worthless and to turn to that which is invaluable and priceless? The pearl of great price, Jesus himself. Lord, work in hearts today. May it be for your glory, Lord. Let us have clear vision. May the enemy not conquer us, but may we conquer him by having faith in the true treasure, the Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.